Steve Palmer here with Lawyer Talk. It's time for another legal breakdown. I have been uh, a little busy this week, but I've also been following the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And as promised, I'm going to do a try to do some breakdown talks about what's going on there. Not necessarily to pick apart all the testimony, not to uh, go into detail and nuance. I'll leave that for the folks who get to watch it 24-7. Uh, I just don't. My schedule doesn't permit that. Uh, but I am going to provide some bigger picture insight and break down some of these uh, bigger concepts into simpler form. As always, make the complicated simple. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about the evidence in uh, Rittenhouse, generally speaking, but uh, maybe broader than that, evidence in self-defense cases. I noted there was testimony from a couple of people. There was from a gentleman named Balk, B-A-L-C-H. There was also testimony from a reporter uh, who worked at the Daily Caller, a guy named McGinnis. Uh, and the reason I'm talking about this is because the testimony involved what the uh, deceased, what the victim was engaged in, what he was doing before the shooting. And so what I'm getting at here is that uh, the question, I guess, would be, what does any of this have to do with anything? Why does it matter what this gentleman was doing before the incident, before he ran into uh, Rittenhouse. And uh, here's a nuance of law, of self-defense law, that I think is important to uh, to break it down. Uh, generally speaking, you're, I'm not allowed in, in a jury trial to ask a jury to step into the shoes of my client, of the defendant. Uh, that would be typically considered improper. But there's a few exceptions. One is self-defense. I can ask, it, it is relevant in self-defense what my client was actually thinking. And they call that a subjective standard. In other words, internal, it's subjective. It's what my client was thinking. And it doesn't necessarily matter uh, if his thought process was completely 100% uh, accurate. Uh, and then the other part of that is what it, what would a reasonable person do in my client's shoes? So it's not only what he subjectively believed, but what somebody who is normal might subjectively believe. And it gets confusing and it's somewhat of a logical uh, circle. But I think the idea here is uh, he, Rittenhouse, in other words, uh, is entitled to act upon what he perceives, what he knows um, he is not entitled to act on what he does not perceive and what he does not know. And that means that if uh, the deceased here was a no good, rotten, SOB, violent criminal, serial killing, uh, baby murdering uh, crook, then uh, and Rittenhouse did not know that, well, then it is not relevant in the trial. Not only would Rittenhouse not know that, so he couldn't have acted based upon his knowledge of that. Um, but it would contaminate the trial uh, and, and just be sort of victim shaming and blaming. I hate to use that word, but here it's accurate. You can't just spatter the courtroom with negative uh, information about the victim. And, and I tell you what, I, when I've seen people try to do that in a courtroom, it typically backfires. I think jurors have a pretty good understanding of, of, of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And when you're just attacking character like that, uh, it tends to backfire as an overreach. Um, anyway, that aside, uh, the idea here is uh, the, the prosecutor has the burden of disproving, so to speak, self-defense. In other words, it's not Kyle Rittenhouse's burden to prove he acted in self-defense. The prosecutor has to disprove it, and that's why some of this stuff is coming up in the prosecutor's case. Uh, but what he did, what the, what the testimony was is from bulk is that he sees uh, Rosenbaum uh, prior to the incident. Um, and Balk said he was, for the most part, uh, side by side with Rittenhouse. He said Rittenhouse was a young kid, and apparently Rittenhouse had given him some less than credible information about his age and what he was doing there. He said he was a medic, but he really wasn't, uh, that kind of stuff. And, and Balk said, uh, you know, he just looked like he was inexperienced and not, not quite 
a little bit of concern, I think, Balk had for Rittenhouse, so he stood close to him. And in that, by standing close to him, the presumption here is, if not the actual testimony, that Rittenhouse saw what Balk saw. So Balk describes uh, Rosenbaum sort of acting, uh, you know, aggressively before, well before the shooting. Uh, and the point here is that if Rittenhouse sees that, if Rittenhouse knows that there's a guy out there who is uh, acting aggressively, acting um, erratically or uh, violently, then Rittenhouse can register that in his brain as a possible threat uh, in, if he sees this or if he gets in a confrontation with the same guy uh, moments later. That would be relevant for his decision-making process. Now, I, I think to break this really down to the truth, uh, anybody who's been in a situation where you've had to fight, whether it's in the playground or whether it's in real life, um, you know, it's really tough to go back and dissect step by step what your thought process was. You're sort of acting on instinct. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I think it's also fair to say that uh, our, our brains have the capacity to register information and act on it in instinct. Um, I think we, we have an incredible capacity for that. And I think the law permits that and allows room for that. And that, that's what this is about. So if there is any question about uh, this sort of victim character type evidence of Rosenbaum, how he acted beforehand, it is relevant only to the extent that Rittenhouse observed it, um, generally speaking. There may be some other relevant reasons for it, but for typical self-defense scenarios, that's why it would come in. Uh, if Rittenhouse didn't see it, if it were three hours beforehand and this guy was uh, beating up his best friend or beating up his worst enemy and Rittenhouse didn't see it, well, it, it typically would not be admitted as evidence in trial. Uh, now, the other testimony came from a guy named McGinnis. Uh, McGinnis was a Daily Caller reporter, and, and he was out there doing his job documenting what he saw. Uh, there was some video that he took for purposes of uh, his uh, his news reports, etc. And uh, he also offered testimony uh, about what um, Rosenbaum was doing, and uh, he offered testimony about what Rittenhouse was doing. Now, this is an easier score, I think. It's uh, This was just sort of fact-based testimony where he was allowed to say what he saw. It still has to be relevant, but I think it was relevant because he's talking about Rittenhouse offering uh, – medical care and attention to those who might need it. Now, of course, he's carrying his AR-15, uh, but uh, he was out offering medical care and he was getting some mixed responses, even some violent responses. And again, this this type of thing would factor into Rittenhouse's subjective and honest belief that he needed to use force to protect himself. And remember, uh, that's, what, that's what's required. Self-defense requires a reasonable and honest belief that if you don't use force, the amount of force necessary to repel an attack that you are going to be in danger. And the amount of force you use has to relate to the amount of danger you think you're facing. And the amount of danger you think you're facing has to not only be subjectively reasonable, but objectively reasonable. In other words, you can't necessarily take a gun to a fist fight, although sometimes you can. So if you're getting pummeled by 10 guys uh, and you might die, well, then you might be able to use deadly force in response to that. So there is no hard, fast uh, rule. Uh, the purpose of today's breakdown is just to give you some perspective on this, is that you can't just put in bad character evidence of the victim. You can't just put in bad character evidence of Rittenhouse or any other witness. But sometimes that type of evidence is relevant and, and really, really relevant and admissible for uh, a self-defense case. And when this Rosenbaum caught up finally and chased down Rittenhouse and caught up with him and uh, in a, 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 I guess a point blank altercation happened to the extent Rittenhouse had the backdrop of his observations of what Rosenbaum was doing uh, prior to moments earlier, then that would be relevant for Rittenhouse's decision 
to act in self-defense by pulling the trigger. Now, I'm not making a comment on whether it was self-defense or not. Well, I, I think it was probably self-defense, legally speaking, and, and I, I do believe that. I've not been shy about saying that. But um, short of that, I try to look at everything uh, objectively uh, from a third-party perspective, and, and that's why the evidence would come in. Now, uh, I will give the other side of the coin here, just uh, maybe in a, in a collateral matter or sideways matter, and anyone who heard my recent uh, interview with Andrew Bron- Andrew Bronca, a uh, self-defense legal expert, uh, knows that we kicked this around a little bit too, and maybe he and I disagreed. I don't know if we disagreed. We agreed that it was an issue. We may have disagreed with uh, uh, how big a deal it was. But what I'm getting at here is this, is that Rittenhouse is going to take some hits here, if not legally, then in the context of a trial as a practical matter. Uh, he lied about uh, his age, apparently, to uh, bulk. Uh, in other words, his premise for being there was less than um, maybe uh, perfect. Uh, he he went to a, a he brought a gun to a riot. He was underage. Uh, he was uh, apparently he's charged with a curfew violation, and there's some allegation that uh, he wasn't allowed to have a minor because of his uh, his age. Now I don't know the nuance of that, but I understand there's a defense. But my point is is that his hands aren't perfectly 100% squeaky clean. He 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 was. His premise for being there, while may have been altruistic, it was a little bit, uh, a little bit of a stretch. He didn't need to be there, in other words. Now, I, I agree with Andrew Bronca that this is legally not significant. In other words, uh, in, in apparently in Wisconsin, uh, in maybe most places, it doesn't matter if you are not allowed necessarily to have a firearm. Uh, you're still able to exercise self-defense. In other words, just because you have a gun and you shouldn't doesn't mean you can't use it for self-defense. And that is true uh, also mostly for other scenarios like uh, say you're, you're involved in other criminal activity or your hands aren't completely clean uh, and you have to happen to have a firearm in a place where you shouldn't. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't use self-defense. Um, I agree with uh, Andrew on that. Uh, and apparently there's some splits of authority around. That said, this case is, like many cases, uh, it transcends the evidence a little bit. And should it? Well, you can debate about that. But the fact is, when we try these cases, when we get involved in these bigger publicity messes, uh, you have to be mindful of the fact that uh, cases are often decided on emotion uh, and uh, and other things uh, in addition to or aside from the actual black letter blueprint law and the actual black letter blueprint facts. Uh, and one of the emotional problems here that I think the defense is going to run into is that Rittenhouse, uh, there's a perception anyway that if you add all these things up, he went to this uh, scene of a riot. He took a AR-15 there and brandished it. Uh, he was dishonest about his age uh, and his credentials as an EMT. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, it is, he's got a little bit of a, of a problem there in the sense that uh, maybe he was looking for trouble, I guess. That would be the argument I would suggest if I'm not actually allowed to make it. I think the prosecutor is trying to imply it, is that uh, he was not necessarily there for altruistic reasons. He was looking for trouble and looking for a fight. And I would I would make that argument in, this, in the context of you're not allowed to use self-defense if you started the fight. And um, now, Andrew Bronca and I, if, if you go back and listen to the interview, we did kick this around a bit, and I agree with him, is that I don't think that precludes or prevents 
Rittenhouse's defense team from uh, raising self-defense. Uh, quite the contrary. I, I, I agree legally speaking. But I also think that that's the strength of the prosecutor's case to the extent there is one. And it sounds like that's where they're going with this. And the defense, if I were defending the case anyway, I would be very mindful of that fact. And I probably would discuss it uh, on Front Street in the first time I talked to the jury and voir dire and picking the jury. Uh, and, and by the way, there's a good legal breakdown on jury selection too. But I would talk to them about that, and I would I would talk to them about that in opening statement as well. And I wouldn't stop there. A lot of my cross-examinations, my direct examinations, and certainly my closing argument would uh, continue that thread. In other words, I would weave into, as much as I could anyway, my crosses, my directs, and my arguments, uh, the response a defense has to those problems with the case. Uh, and you know, it, I, I'll leave it to the, uh, the, the guys with boots on the ground there, the defense team, to uh, to figure out what their response is exactly. But to the extent they have one, and I'm sure they do, uh, they, they want to make sure that that thread is commonly woven throughout the case. And that's that's just good, solid, um, higher level maybe uh, trial advocacy. Uh, so the purpose of today was just to give you a quick little evidentiary breakdown on subjective and objective character evidence in a self-defense case. And like anything, it seems complicated on its face, but it can be made simple. And that's what we do here on Lawyer Talk Breakdown. Uh, if you have a topic, a question, a concern, uh, a thought, shoot it to me. You can go to lawyertalkpodcast.com. Uh, I have an email interface there. You can submit a question. Uh, you can always check us out at ohiolegaldefense.com if you have uh, questions about the podcast or maybe even your own case. Uh, even if it's not a criminal defense case, we refer a lot of cases out. We're a great lightning rod for that. And it seems to be working. In other words, people are sending in questions. I've got a couple in the hopper that I'm going to address soon at the new Lawyer Talk Q&A series. And if you have one, uh, go ahead and, uh, and submit it. I'll be happy to discuss it. Uh, so this has been another Lawyer Talk legal breakdown off the record on the air, at least until now.